Galatians chapter 3. Verses 10 through 14 is the only thing we'll cover today. Just a quick run into this. Remember, Paul having already established his apostolic calling, authority, and message uh, in the first two chapters, he now writes uh, a defense of that gospel message to the churches. And as we keep moving through this just powerhouse epistle, let's keep in mind why Paul is writing it. Very important. (coughs) False teachers had come into the churches in the cities of Galatia where Paul was preaching the gospel during his first missionary journey and, and people came together, churches were born and as he left, people started coming in teaching uh, that in order to be a Christian, one had to also adhere to the laws of Moses starting with the rite of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. Unwilling to accept salvation, justification in Christ alone, what they wanted to do is they wanted to put their finishing touches on the work of Christ. And Paul said to them, to add anything to the gospel is damnable, corrupted, twisted, deceived. A message from hell, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And one of the things you need to remember as you're looking at the book of Galatians together, we're walking through this verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is the key verse of the book. is chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. He's saying it over and over again. Not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. If you remember, chapter 2 verse 16 was written on the heels of rebuking the apostle Peter. Paul, the apostle, rebuked the apostle Peter for disseminating this false gospel by withdrawing from the dirty Gentiles, Christians, during time of table fellowship. Paul told him that he was not walking in step or in conduct or in line, chapter 2, verse 14, with the truth of the gospel. Orthopedio, straightforward walking. Paul had to remind Peter, listen, we became clean the same way the Gentiles became clean. And that is through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by dietary laws, not by circumcision, but by faith in Christ. And by withdrawing from the Gentile, the dirty Gentiles, Peter was just simply validating what the Judaizers were teaching, that you have to add the law of Moses to justification. Now remember, we talked about this, I'm going to keep reminding you. Justification is, is a coin with two sides. On one side, we're declared just in the courtroom of God because our sin debt has been paid by the substitutionary atonement of Christ. On the other side of the coin, we are just because of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. His perfect life, his perfect obedience to the law has been counted or reckoned or imputed. It's it's an accounting term to our account. A true understanding of justification will render this, that you are justified by an alien righteousness, something that is not of your own. It is Christ. And last week, Paul, in love, calls the Galatians who are buying into this foolish, asking them, chapter 3, verse 1, who has bewitched you? In other words, don't be so stupid and follow these men who are led by a deceptive spirit and thinking that you can be justified somehow in your moral behavior, somehow in your moral exercising or following some some sort of moral code. And he proves it, as we looked last week, with three rhetorical questions. One is, did you receive the Holy Spirit at your conversion? You see that in chapter, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, uh, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit in conversion by works of the law, by faith? The answer is by faith. 
The second thing he says, then are you being matured and complete by the law, living, trying to justify yourself, or by the Spirit? The answer, of course, was the Spirit. And then he asked the third question, did the Holy Spirit come to them in abundance and supply, abundant supply and work miracles because you were circumcised or followed the Ten Commandments? No, it is God who gives supplies and works miracles among you. Don't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. And then Paul, last week, and this is where we ended, in a brilliant move to prove his point even further that we are justified by faith alone, Christ alone, brings the father of Jewish people into the equation. Abraham enters stage left. Actually, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, imputed, as that term, to him as righteousness. He believed God it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 9, 8 and 9. Uh, excuse me, verse 6. What a great argument. The genius of this argument is that Abraham was justified when he believed God by faith before he was circumcised, while he was still a Gentile, a Chaldean. By, by faith alone, in other words, he says, it's not about your descendancy of being of Abraham, but your the spiritual descendancy, it's by faith alone. That's the, that's the gospel. And it was preached, look at verse 8, it was preached to Abraham in Genesis 12, before the covenantal sign of circumcision, verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, the good news of Christ. Beforehand, before he was circumcised in chapter 17, this goes back to chapter 12, in you, in your seed, shall all the nations be blessed. So then, chapter 3, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, who's the man of faith. He's just trying to prove his point. And the Judaizers were telling them, listen, you need to become a child, a son of Abraham, like we are. You need to become the son of Abraham through your circumcision in order to complete your, your Christianity, your conversion. And Paul says, listen, they're already children of Abraham. One doesn't get to be a child through circumcision. One gets to be a child of Abraham, a man of faith through the same way he did. He was justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And if you still think that it's your moral record, if you st he's on the same vein here. If you still think it's through your moral record, look at me at our text. Chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely, if that's what you all want to do, if you, all of you who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for... The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, non-Jews, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Three things I think is going on here. There are those who are relying on the law. And Paul has some things to say to them. There are those who are redeemed or being redeemed by Christ from the curse. So relying on the law, redeeming us from the curse and receiving the promised blessing. 
Relying on the law, redeeming us from the curse, and receiving the promised blessing. Number one, relying on the law. Verse 10 again. For all who rely, that's an important word, rely on the works of the law are under curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. So let's talk a little bit first about what's on everybody's mind this morning. The curse of God. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) And don't feel bad. Years ago, we were going through 1 John. We landed on chapter 2 about the wrath of God on Mother's Day. So you're welcome. (laughs) The word for curse here is katara in the Greek. And it's the opposite, polar opposite of blessing. And when we think of the word cursed, maybe you think about someone who just cursed you out at the red light. I don't know. Or, Or maybe something... When you think of curse, you think of the, the voodoo uh, dolls and, and being cursed and how you know, people have put curses on other people. Actually, it's in the Old Testament. There was a man by the name of Balaam who was a man of curses. He was a sorcerer, a medium, and he would call down curses upon uh, people. If you remember, we were studying Samuel, Goliath, and Shimei of, of Saul's house uh, uh, um, ineffectively called curses down on David. So there are such things as curses that are coming down from evil and dark places. But here, that's not what we're talking about. It's not about evil spirits doing the cursing, but God himself announcing curses, harm, death, destruction, pain. In the New Testament, you see words like doomed or devoted to destruction. When you talk about the curse, the curses are, are always about loss of relationship. Loss of relationship. Devoted to destruction. Blessings are all about the intimacy of relationships. So curses about loss, blessings about intimacy, and to be blessed is to be granted all that is good, and to be cursed is to be granted to all that is bad. <clears throat> and what Paul is doing here in this text, when he's talking about curses and blessings, we'll get to them both. When he's, what, he's doing about the, what he's talking about, a kind of painting a picture for us, comes from Deuteronomy, actually, uh, chapter 27. You can look it up later. And what you find there is the people of God were entering into the promised land. They were getting ready to enter the promised land across the Jordan River. And, and the tribes got together on two sides of the mountain. <clears throat> Half of the tribes on one side on Mount Gerizim. They were blessing the people while the tribes on the other side, Mount Ebal, cursed them. And there were curses and blessing being called down from uh, the mountain. You can find that again in, in Deuteronomy 27. And what's interesting about that is they're on this, they're on this mountain. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. And they're talking about cursing. <clears throat> Cursed would be the man who, who makes a carved or cast image, a metal image. In other words, breaking the first commandment. Cursed would be anyone who dishonors mother and father. Cursed would be anyone who perverts justice due to the sojourner, the, the, the one who comes from a foreign land, to the fatherless, to the widow. Cursed would be anyone who doesn't conform, conform to the words of this law by doing them. That's the quote he's using. It's curses and blessing. And every time the Levitical priest would yell out these curses, the people would say, amen, truth, amen. And it was blessings. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 27. We get it to 28 and start talking about the blessing. That's what Paul referring to. The punishment that the Israelites knew and the, Judea, the Jews knew from the law was that they have to keep God's law perfectly and his standard is righteousness. And throughout the Old Testament, you find curses, even in Adam and Eve. You remember the story. Everything's going well until they sin. And, and, and sin enters the world and there's a curse there's human rebellion, there's disobedience to the will of God, and there's a curse on Adam and Eve for their rebellion. Genesis 3. Do you know that the Old Testament closes 
and the New Testament opens. Well, right before the New Testament opens, it closes. And the very last words in Malachi, else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Every lawbreaker is subject to divine condemnation, curse. And what's very interesting about this passage as well is, which I found out this week, when Paul, the Bible says in the New Testament after Paul got converted and became a Christian, he was a, he was a Pharisee, a religious leader, a very prominent one. After he came to faith in Jesus Christ, it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four that he received 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes. He was being beaten and whipped for his faith in Christ in the synagogues. They, they would get him and they would beat him. And it turns out that in, the, in the, uh, the manual of the synagogue, when someone is beaten like that, a Jew is beaten for uh, blasphemy, which they would say he was doing, they were required to, in between the beatings, call out the curses upon him in Deuteronomy 27. Well, Paul was well aware of the curses of Deuteronomy 27. It was lodged in his mind. And how wonderful he must have thought, even in the midst of that, that he's been redeemed. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, not one. The Bible says that the whole world is held accountable to God. Everyone is obligated to obey the moral standard of God. All human beings, because God's laws are reflective of God's character. And since he's our creator, he knows what we need and how we should live and have human flourishing. And he gives us the commands in love. The problem is not the law. We'll talk a lot about this next week. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. The law is good and holy. That's what, that's what uh, Paul tells us. The problem is us. And, and the law can never be isolated from God, for the law is God's law, expression of his nature and his will. And what the law says, God says. And what the law blesses, God blesses. And what the law curses, God curses. And look what it says. Not only we must keep the law, those who are relying upon it, but we must also continue to keep it. Constant, consistent obedience. Look at verse 10. Cursed be who? Everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. It just about covers everybody. The Jews who are running around relying upon the law and the Jewish Judaizers who tell the Gentiles, you have to be circumcised and lean into and rely upon the standard that God has written in his law. Everyone. Remember the context. The context is justification. The Judaizers believed that one is justified, made right through or via the law. And that's the heart of legalism. And it's rooted in the, the problem with legalism, more than anything, is our inability to keep God's law perfectly. Legalism is pointless and, shadow, and, and shallow because it is an attempt for people to do something that they cannot and will not do. And yet they still think, we know legalists, and I, we all could fall into that category, that somehow in our legalism, somehow in our efforts to earn our salvation, to earn God's love, to earn God's acceptance, we put him in our debt. And now he owes us a good life. We just learned about that on Friday, the prosperity gospel. I'm doing the right thing. I'm sowing the seed. I'm believing by faith. And now I want nothing to happen to me. I don't want to suffer ever. That's what it means to rely upon the law, or later we'll see, under the law is that they, they, people want to get under and rely upon it in order to be justified. But they can't. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is, no one is justified 
before God by the law. Unless someone here can raise their hand, don't do it, because we'll call you out on it. I have never broken any commands of God. I have always done, every single day, by motive and deed, followed the moral commands of God. I did it perfectly. So I never told a lie. I never took anything that belonged to me. I never spoke an unkind word. I did never use God's name in vain. I never looked at anyone lustfully. I never hated anyone in my life. Well... Makes us a liar, blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. We're all guilty, right? So why would anyone try to be made right with God, to earn their justification, to earn their salvation, to earn a right relationship with him by works of the law? That's Paul's point. And the false teachers were saying, first believe, have faith in Jesus, then obey God's law, then you'll be justified. But Paul's preaching a gospel that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you'll be justified, and then the consequences of that, you'll follow the will of God, the moral standard of God. Not believe and obey and you'll be justified, but believe and are justified and then be obedient to Christ. This is not just two simple forms of gospel reading. This is not just, well, it doesn't really matter. These are two completely different salvific modes, salvation, justification mode. One is by faith and works. One is by faith alone, trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. And, and, and the, the results in our hearts will be completely different on which way you fall. You'll have different results of character, different results of attitude, ways of looking at things. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because faith is a a destitute cry to God, while works tries to somehow get into God's graces through our merits. Faith trusts that God alone can do the work of salvation, while works thinks, listen, you know what? It's about my human effort as well. Luther was right when he said, trying to be justified by the law is like counting money out of an empty purse, eating and drinking from an empty dish and cup, looking for strength and riches where there is nothing but weakness and poverty, laying a burden on someone who was already oppressed to the point of collapse, end quote. And everyone who depends on the law is under a curse. That's what he's saying. Because the law curses those who break it, and every one of us break God's law. But, look what it says, the righteous will live how? The righteous will live by faith. The end of verse 11. That's a quote, if you don't know it, it's from an Old Testament book called Habakkuk. Uh, In its original context, it's had to do with condemning the pride of the Babylonians. And he was saying, your people, uh, the Babylonians are living with this pride, but not the people of God. The people of God need to trust him, and that the people of God need to have faith in him. That the people of God are declared righteous, not by works, but by faith. And we too, family, those who call upon the name of Christ must live by faith, by trust, by reliance upon God. Just like Abraham did, just like Habakkuk is declaring Faith must characterize our relationship with God from beginning to end. This verse, by the way, the righteous shall live by faith, was a huge eye-opener to the reformer Martin Luther. I don't know if you know the story, but he was, he was in a monastery as a Catholic priest. He was very depressed, very dark periods of illness and depression. And, and, and he read this verse, and he, when he read it, he, he 
thought it meant that God is requiring him to be righteous on his own, and through his own righteousness you shall live by faith. And lying in his bed, he was afraid, and he would say it over and over again, the righteous will live by faith, the righteous will live by faith. And he got sick. And after he got sick, Luther went to Rome to a church called St. John Lateran, L-A-T-E-R-A-N. The Pope had promised anyone who comes to Rome and walks up these staircases, this staircase that they say came from uh, the the Pontius Pilate, the the hall in which Jesus walked up and had the bloodstain of Jesus on these steps, was transferred to Rome. But the Pope promised anyone who walked up these steps would have indulgences. We've talked about this before. Forgiveness of sins for any pilgrim that would come. And Luther went with with all other people that have gone up, and they would walk each step, kissing the steps and praying, kissing the steps, and on top they would receive this indulgence. Luther's son would write about Luther's trip to Rome. As he, Luther, his father, repeated his prayers on the Lateran staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers returned to Wittenberg and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine, end quote. Luther, at that point, no longer believed it was his righteousness to gain favor, believed that the righteousness was imputed to him by faith in God's son. Luther later would write about this incident. Before those words, the righteous shall live by faith, broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him. He couldn't live it under his condemnation. But when the Spirit of God came, I understood those words. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man, entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Luther realized and understood that the works of the law cannot justify the way faith can. Verse 12, because the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Righteousness is not by the law, for the law requires perfect obedience, but faith gazes at the beauty and the work and the salvation of God and all he has done in Christ for justification, righteousness, salvation, relying on the work of Christ, not on our own. Paul could speak about the law and the goodness of the law, but we have to keep in mind what he's saying when the law is not of faith. Keep in mind, we're talking about justification. You can't have the moral standard of God and faith combined to make you right before God. It just doesn't work. One is leaning on self, one is leaning on God. One is exercising faith, the other one is leaning on your good deeds. One's on exclusively on Christ. Another one is on your goodness two avenues do not mix paul himself would say in titus when the goodness of when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit paul is pressing on his point if you're relying upon the law you're under a curse but verse 13 christ And we're all under that curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, the penalty of breaking the law is the wrath of God. And God's laws pronounces curses on those who fail to keep it. 
Therefore, if we are to be saved and justified, made right in God, the curse that the law brought, the curse that the law brings because of our failure must be removed. Must be removed. And that is what Christ did on the cross. Christ redeemed his people from the law's accursed penalty. Listen to Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death and hung on a tree, his body shall not remain there all night. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. But don't defile the land, take him down. Every criminal sentenced to death under the Mosaic legislation and executed by stoning whatever it was, was hung on a tree as a symbol of divine curse. Taken down, that's why they took Jesus. They said, take his body down before the sun goes down. Remember that when Jesus was crucified? It's a symbol of divine rejection. And the point of, of hanging someone on a tree was to expose the capital punishment to shame. It's capital crime to public shame. And announcing you're under a curse, a divine curse, because he's hung on a tree. And, and it wasn't the hanging on a tree Listen, it wasn't that the man was cursed because he was on a tree. He was on the tree because he was cursed of God. You follow that? We read it in the Old Testament. Joshua defeated five Canaanite kings, put them on trees. Same thing in the sons of Saul and Gibeah. We were going through 2 Samuel, hung on a tree. And what Paul is doing, Paul is taking this curse, this, this cursed motif that's in Deuteronomy, and saying that when Jesus was nailed to a wooden cross, it equates to the same thing as hung on a tree. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 13, the preaching of the gospel was Jesus was on a tree. The wooden cross equated to the hung on a tree, 1 Peter 2.24 as well. And here Paul's saying Christ purchased, purchased from the curse of the law. He brought us back from the sentence of condemnation which the law pronounced on everyone because it demanded death. That's why the people, the Jewish people understood the curse. That's why the cross, Jesus being hung on a tree, was such a stumbling block to them. Only cursed people get hung on a tree. You talk about the Messiah, the Savior, cursed on a tree? Can't be. The Bible says that he was cursed, and his cursing, his crucifixion, redeemed us. You know what that word redeemed means? In Paul's day, it had to do with the marketplace, referring to a payment, a price. It was a place where slaves would come, and somebody would come and buy back and purchase the slave and set them free. A friend or a relative would set them free. They would liberate them. They'd be freed or rescued from bondage and slavery. And, and, and the Bible talks that, Bible tells us, and I, I know Paul had, this, had to have this in mind, being a Jew, knowing the Old Testament so well, that God, when God rescued the Jewish people out of Egypt... It says in, in Exodus chapter 6 that I will bring you out from the burdens of Egyptian. I will deliver you from slavery from them and I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. Jesus said that those who sin are a slave to sin and that we all need redemption. And notice what it says in this text, everybody. It didn't say that Christ did his best. He really tried. He hopes it works that we're somehow now redeemed from the curse of the law. No, he was absolutely decisive. He accomplished something that he was 
planned out to do and has delivered on his goods. His death was totally effectual. He accomplished precisely what he accomplished and what he wanted to accomplish. He redeemed his people from the curse of the law. And as Jesus died as our ransom, he paid it with the precious blood, his own blood. And by dying on the cross, the Bible says that Jesus bore the curse of the law for us. And now believers in Christ are no longer under, under the curse of the law, the curse of God. We have been ransomed by the very blood of Jesus Christ himself. He became a curse. He became a curse. Didn't, he didn't just be cursed. He became a curse. Jesus was treated as the lawbreaker that you and I are. Jesus was treated as the liar, as the adulterer, as the thief, as the drug addict, as the the prideful, the greedy one. He was treated all those terrible things that we are upon himself, who himself was a lamb without blemish or defect. He did not deserve it. We deserve it, and he took it for us. That's, That's the message of the gospel. Jesus was cursed for us, hanging on a cross as a substitute for our sins. And we got freed, redeemed, forgiven, to, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, the children of God, might become the righteousness of God. When Christ took our sins, he became the curse, family. That's the message of the gospel. The curse we deserve was legally imputed and transferred to him. We traded our sin. He took our curse. He gave to us his righteousness. What a gift of God. We give him all our sin, folly, and shame, and and, and all the things we've done sinfully in rebellion against God. He takes them, he dies as our curse, as our substitute, and he gives us his perfect life. His righteousness is given to us. The curse is removed on the cross as he bears our sin. The law and its curse are no longer to be feared, for Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being a curse in our place. Relying upon the law will get you cursed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And look at verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The law blocks the blessings of God and yet Christ opens up the door for the blessings of God. So now in Christ Jesus, God's blessings could come to us again freely to sinners, to all nations and all tongues and all tribes. And I remember when I, when I first was reading this text months ago as we're getting ready to preach to Galatians, we were still in Samuel. I remember getting to verse 14 and thinking, what does the blessing of Abraham have anything to do with receiving the spirit through faith? And now that we get here through the exposition of scripture, it makes sense. It makes sense. The gospel that we are justified, salvation has come, redemption has come, the curse has been removed, is by grace through faith. And the imputation of of the perfect life of Christ, his death on the cross, the same good news that was preached to Abraham, verse 8 and 9, brings to us the promise as well of a new heart of a new motivation, a new life when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. And now we are in union with the person and the work of Christ. All that he has accomplished has been given to us. That's what it means. In fact, Ezekiel and Jeremiah preached on it. You know, the Old Testament, this is not something new. In fact, Ezekiel said this, the day is going to come, I'm making a new covenant with the people. 
I'm making a new covenant, not the one I made with their fathers. They broke that. I was a husband to them, and they broke the, the covenant, the first covenant. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write my laws on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will forgive them of their iniquity. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel 36. And think about blessings. Think about, think about justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. In this new covenant, Ezekiel, years before, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit, I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my commands. What's the promise? What's the promise? Remember what, remember what Paul said in, in, in chapter 3, 1 through 5? The Holy Spirit will come upon you by faith in Christ through justification. That's how you got converted. In chapter 3, verse uh, 6 through 13, the redemptive work of Christ is believed and, and you are righteous by faith alone. And here he, he's taking justification by faith alone in Christ alone in his perfect life as atoning death and he's taking the Holy Spirit in which we are sealed onto the day of redemption and he's linking them together. It's just not that Christ died for you. It's now you're in union with him through the Holy Spirit. That's how the application of the gospel will come to your life. So that's why the Bible says you must be born again. Because when you're born again, you know that you've been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And the Holy Spirit brings and applies the gospel, the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to your soul. They're linked together. The blessing that came to Abraham. He enjoyed justification by faith. We receive the Spirit by that same promise that was given to Abraham, we received. Timothy George writes this. In verse 14, Paul brought together three, excuse me, three key soteria, uh, salvation concepts. Soteriological. It means about salvation. He brought three of them together that will dominate all of Galatians. Justification, redemption, and regeneration. Each one have a distinct dimension of salvation by Christ. Through pardon and acquittal, Christ removed our, common, our, our condemnation. We've talked about that, justification. He also set us free from the power of sin. That's redemption. And he bestowed upon us new life. That's regeneration. Following that? That's the good news. That's the good news. Now, this is what I want to do. I, I want to I talk one minute about blessing and then we'll close. Because I want you to understand the difference between curses and blessing. And if you want to know what it means to be blessed of God, don't listen to the prosperity gospel bunch of liars, okay? It's not about the cars you drive and the health you have because you have lots of cars and lots of, hell and go, uh, lots of health and go to hell. So that's not it, okay? The blessing of God, if you want to understand what does it mean, what does the Bible mean about blessing, you go to number six. A lot of you know this, chapter six, verse 22. It's the benediction. God says to Moses, speak to, a- speak to Aaron. Thus you shall bless the people. And he says this, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This was called parallelism, right? So they're, they're, they're synonymous. Bless and keep. May the Lord face shine and be gracious. May the Lord lift up his countenance and may he give you peace. You see what he's saying? For the Jews to be blessed by God was to be bathed in the shining glory of his presence, his face. The Lord bless you means the Lord will make his face shine upon you. But remember, all mankind is under what? A curse. 
damned and set away from God, sent away from God. The curses are a loss of relationship, and the blessings are what? Intimate relationship. But we're all under a curse. How do you get blessed? Do you know that on the cross, when Jesus died, the whole land became dark over the cross? And when darkness fell on the cross, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he hung on the tree, God the Son was accursed by God the Father. The law's curse is God's curse because the law is God's law. And therefore, Christ became the object of divine reprobation, cursed by the Father. The wrath of God poured upon him, and he was what? Banished. From the Father's presence. Why have you forsaken me? He didn't just feel forsaken. He was forsaken. For Jesus to become the curse, he had to be completely forsaken of God, the Father. Why? So that we can have intimacy, blessings of the Father. He endured the darkness and abandonment and judgment and the curse of God so we don't have to. He was forsaken so that we can be forgiven. Jesus went through the darkness so that we can have light. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He told his disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom. In Galatians 3, he was cursed, redeemed us from the curse of the Lord for our becoming a curse for us. That word for means on behalf. He's our substitute. He received the curse we earned and we received the blessing through the gospel. Our sins, our curse are given to him, imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. Last verse, 2 Corinthians 4. In the case of the God of this world, those who are not believers, those who refuse to come to Christ for their salvation, they've been blinded. Blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're being kept from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we are justified, when we stop relying upon ourselves, we stop relying upon our good works in order to make us right with God, but we trust in him alone, that Christ himself died as our atonement, his righteous life is now imputed to us, something we could never live, Never do. His death was the death we should have died. The curse he took, we should have took. When we rely completely on him by faith, the Bible says that we are justified, made right with God through faith, and the promise of the Holy Spirit will come. The promise of the Holy Spirit will reveal to you this beautiful truth. We must always preach the gospel to ourselves. It is so easy to get high and mighty. It is so easy to look down on others. We're all under the same curse, and we all come to God the same way. And that is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is sufficient. I hope you know that this morning. We continue to worship in song. Make a commitment to Christ. Turn to him. Stop relying upon yourself. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Stop trying to justify yourself in your life. Come, trust him. Trust him. Worship him. Rely upon him this morning. Father, thank you. There, there are probably, I, I, there's probably no words we could possibly say to thank you enough that you have made a way that we could not have made. That you could come and do what we could not do. 
Though in our poverty, in our brokenness, in our sin, in our deadness, you have made a way. Help us, Father, to understand that you are our Father in heaven and that you yourself sent your Son as a sacrifice who died in our place. And by his death and resurrection, we can be made right with you, forgiven in the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us alone, that your spirit will dwell within us, bring us in union with Christ. So God, I pray for those who may not know you today, that they will come to know you, that they would trust and rely upon you alone. Spirit of God, do the work we ask for your glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.